The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi everybody, this is a new episode of The Shaken and Stirred Show. I am Nigel Barker in New York, and it's really, really good to be with you. You know, I was just thinking I need to up my production in my studio. I'm in my office. This is where I've been doing Shaken and Stirred for the past, I guess, over a year. This whole past year that we've just had, that's all been at home in my studio. I used to love to do the podcast on the road. And I think that's where we're going to have to take it going forward is on the road, people, in bars, in hotels, in cool places. If you know of a great cool place that I should go and have a drink and a chat, then please let me know. DM me at The Shaken and Stirred Show on Instagram um, and tell me of your favorite haunt, your top bar, the best pub near you, a club I should go to, or a great mixologist or bartender you think I should visit. And perhaps you can pop by too and we can have a drink while we're at it. What do you think of that? Well, talking about drinks and all the rest of it, this is the Shaken and Stirred show, and it would not be the Shaken and Stirred show if I didn't have a rather fabulous cocktail. And I have decided to opt for what some people think is one of the, it's, it's a cocktail where let's say has one of the worst names out there, but at the same time is, a, is really a classic. It's the Cosmo. Oh yes, I went for a pink Cosmo, although mine is, I'm gonna taste it right now. Mm. A little bit more tart than the average Cosmo because I like extra cranberry, which makes it not as pink as it could be. Of course, the Cosmo or the Cosmopolitan is that very pink drink you see in a martini glass. Um, bartenders, for some reason, always turn their nose up at it when you when you if you order one. It's I, you know, I used to be embarrassed to order one. I, I used to not order them, but my wife, my girlfriend at the, at the time would order one and I would try it because it was so delicious and then pretend to sort of sneakily have hers and then say, oh, no, it's not for me. It's a pink drink. I don't you know what that looks too frilly but it's really a classic sour is the fact of the matter and you know it's it's got a sort of a bit of a history and, and ultimately it was sex in the city and carrie bradshaw sarah jessica parker who made the drink really famous uh in sex of the city it really almost became another character in the show i'm not sure how many they drank but that is also why it became arguably the most famous cocktail in america maybe ever now, it was created by a guy called Cecchini or Caccini um, in the, the famed Tribeca bar called the Odeon, um, which if you've ever driven through Tribeca, you'll see it with the, the neon lights sort of flickering on the outside. It was a classic bar. People like Madonna used to go there. And um, in fact, Madonna used to order these regularly, apparently, with her friend Sandra Bernhardt, who used to share a studio with me at Sirius XM when I used to do the Gentleman's Code over there with Andy Cohen. And uh, you know, she was a regular ordering it from um, Caccini himself at the bar. His name is Toby, Toby Caccini. And, you know, just give me another one, boyfriend, is what apparently she used to say. Give me another one. Now, it is made with absolute citron, which is if you want to be true to the drink, it's, it's you kind of have to have absolute citron. That's how it is in, in the film. Of course, any uh, vodka citron will kind of do. Uh, it is made with Cointreau and lime juice. And um, it, it's, what is it also got in there? And of course, cranberry juice. Now, I believe Caccini used to use uh, ocean spray 
So real, just classic down the line, and it's all shaken and then just poured into your glass. And you know, so the, and and I guess the the amounts it's about sort of one and a half ounces of the vodka to a half ounce of Cointreau, a half ounce of lime juice, and a sort of splash, depending on how tart or how red you want your drink of the cranberry. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, when it was first introduced to the bar. The actual story goes that the bartender who was also working with Kachini had told him about this cosmopolitan, the full name, um, but it was made with like a sour mash uh, and a triple sec. And he thought, oh, that doesn't sound too good. I'm going to mix that up. I'm going to put in, and you know, and if, if anyone knows about making margaritas, you know, if you want to get rid of the sour mash, you swap it for a Cointreau or Grand Marinier and fresh lime juice. That's your sour mash, right? And he just did that to the Cosmopolitan, and voila, the Cosmo was born. So there, a little bit of history about my drink. I thought I'd go into it because it is a much maligned cocktail, and it shouldn't be. Now, we have an incredible guest today, a kind of a guest that we've never really had on the show before, um, who usually sits in the interviewing chair, not as the person being interviewed, but the interviewer. So um, this will be interesting as the tables get turned. But before we get to her, we'll have some booze news for you, a little bit of extra booze news. And we've got a couple of rather interesting things. I've got some archaeological discovery, and you know I love a great archaeological discovery in the booze, dating booze back 2,700 years. We also have something right up to date, which is Guinness, one of my favourite stouts in the world, favourite beers in the world, if you like. I've come, down, come out with a chocolate mint stout, which uh, we're going to get to that too. But first of all, archaeologists discover 2,700-year-old wine press in Mesopotamia, which is the sort of, I like to say, the grand way of saying Iraq. Um, but, you know, they have found this extraordinary discovery. UNESCO are trying to uh, list it on the World Heritage Site. And let me read this to you from the professor at the University of Udine. He said, this is a, quite a unique archaeological finding, but is the first time in northern Mesopotamia that archaeologists are able to identify a wine production area. Now, you know, there's a lot of stories about where wine came from, who first created it, and 2,700 years sounds like a long time, but in the grand scheme of wine, it's not. There are, you know, we've talked about it on Booze News before, we found wine 6,000 years ago, I think even 8,000 years ago in China, a rice wine. But this is the very first time in this part of the world. Now, um, in the ruins, they found 14 industrial, car, um, industrial sort of installations carved into the rock and they were square and circle basins um, where apparently they would, the workers would press the grapes and extract their juice during the winemaking. And uh, that sort of grape juice, which is called a must, is then transferred into clay jars. And I believe they found pieces of these clay jars around there as well. So super fascinating. Love these sorts of stories because it, it really gives some history to booze. Um, you know, it's, we, we often, don't realize just how long it's been a part of our culture. And then talking about culture, Guinness. You know, my mum apparently used to drink Guinness when she was breastfeeding me. Now, I don't re can't recommend that anymore. Obviously, pregnant ladies out there, you're not allowed to have any alcohol. Or, and when you're breastfeeding, you're not allowed to have any alcohol either, I believe. But my mum, back in the day, was told, because I was a very hungry baby, that I should be you know that she should rather um, drink Guinness and not just any old Guinness but like a four pack a four pack people <laughs> every 
every single day. So clearly that's not 100% great for you, um, I don't think. And, but I, the funny thing is, you know, I'm one of six kids and I am the tallest by about six inches. And my mother has always put it down to the fact that when she breastfed me, she breastfed me whilst drinking Guinness. So I basically had Guinness on tap. Now back to this story, because they have launched a bourbon barrel aged chocolate mint stout. How fantastic does that sound? Um, this is from their Guinness Open Gate Brewery in Baltimore. And um, they're creating this Guinness in these Kentucky bourbon barrels, which I think is already fantastic. By the way, this. Stout clocks in at 8 point, sorry, 10.8% ABV. That's a lot of alcohol in a beer. So it's, it's not, you know, for the light of heart. Don't just sort of think, okay, this is some fun chocolate, you know, stout. It's, it's going to be fine. It's pretty hardcore. Um, it's going to be retailing in four packs of 11.2 ounce bottles. Um, and they're selling for about 20 bucks um, for a four pack. Uh, you know, it's really quite fantastic. And by the way, they're also coming out with an imperial gingerbread stout, um, which is apparently brewed with allspice, ginger, nutmeg and cinnamon. So there you go, people. Something to celebrate, something to look forward to and a little bit of booze news. Now, as I mentioned, my next guest is normally the interviewer. But today we're swapping chairs. Our guest this week has won two Emmys for her work as an interviewer, reporter, and weekend entertainment anchor on Good Morning America, was formerly an ABC national news correspondent, and is now the anchor of News Nation's latest debut program, Morning in America. Adrian Banker. Adrian, nice to nice to meet you. Driving the car with you, be your yeah. mirror, all these things. Wow. It was like carpool karaoke, but really, really fast. <laughs> Super fast. I love it. Well, listen, cheers, by the way. Have you got yourself a, a drink a, a, to sort of drink along with me? I wanted to. And you said, you know, I, I was asked what my favorite drink is. Honestly, I have to be what in is your bed. favorite drink. I have to be in bed in an hour. So my favorite drink right now would be a ginger beer with a twist of lime. Okay, well, if you weren't, by the way, it's all extraordinarily inappropriate. We're now talking about going into bed and we haven't even started the damn podcast. Look, Adrian, <laughs> I wish we could rewind the, the tape, but we can't. We have to just go forward on this. I'm just going to battle on. But if you weren't going to bed in an hour, no, um, what would you be drinking? What, what is your go-to? Wait a minute, I'm confused. You're telling me it's inappropriate for me to talk about going to bed when I'm a morning news host. So this is part of the general conversation. What time do you have to go to bed when you have to wake up so early? And you're asking me what I would drink at the bar when you're you're all nervous about us being in the car together, we're already jumping to the bar. Well, you know, I know. Well, it's a shaken and stirred <laughs> show. It's very messy and sticky in this on the show. You know, we, I can we... hear, I can tell, I can tell. So we'll we'll leave that to our imagination. But right now, I would love like a hot cup of tea, and just relax. I I stayed up till eight thirty last night. I got a phone call at ten thirty. Didn't know what day it was. Had a full on conversation like I was wide awake, and then had to go back to bed and wake up at one. So, yeah, tea would be fitting. <laughs> Do you ever have a cocktail? Do you ever in indulge? I can't say that I don't. I would just say that I'm like a Rolls Royce where I've learned that I have to make sure that I'm careful with different chemicals in my body, be it a cocktail or caffeine. Um, I just feel like when you do morning news or when you do anything where you're actually in the public eye on camera and you're supposed to be chipper and yourself and authentic, then you have to be really, really careful about what you put in your body. So I will be honest with you, it's it's often very much a calculated decision whether or not to have a cocktail. 
And, and, and arguably, if you were to have one, what would it be? <laughs> See, I'm going to get mean, it out of you one way or the other. This is what <laughs> it's like. God's sakes. It's like I trying mean, to pry, like, you know, blood out of I'll a have, stone. I'll have what you're having. That's usually what I would say. I'll have what okay. you're having. Well, I'm having a Cosmo. So I would imagine that you Lovely. might love one of those. Well, shake it and stir it. It makes total sense that this is a proper conversation with Nigel Barker. Well, lovely and by the way, talking about that, you know, you mentioned that you have to be as if you're acting as if you have to be 100% sober to be on television. When the reality is, <laughs> I can tell you that some of the best top model judgings we ever did, we'd had a glass of wine or, or a glass of champagne. And, you know, and that, that would happen because we was we'd be late into the evening sometimes. And we'd be like, How you know what, a little cocktail, isn't that the worst thing? How would that go though? I mean, did you ever feel like you were like, okay, I should have waited or we should have waited till after we were wrapped or maybe I had one too many. Did you ever think that? Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, no, never. No, I'm kidding. I mean, look, we never drank that much. We only had a glass of champagne or something, one glass, you know? So it's, you know, it would be, we would be shooting at some fancy hotel or something some crazy location and it was like okay you know someone would would you know you're in some beautiful place in the world like i don't know milan or uh, rome or paris you know and you're and so at that point when the locals would, would drink wine at lunch so you know they're yeah. serving it for you and they're like oh would you like a glass and so we'd say yes and kelly catrone would be like, oh let's have a glass of champagne or whatever it was never anything sort of stronger than that but um yeah you know hey but these things happen but yeah, well, they're very cheersy and very celebratory. And I think that that's lovely and warm. And when I think about going to Europe again, because I was just telling someone, gosh, it's been a long time since I've traveled. Oh, I would love to go to Europe or Asia right now and, and try to pick my dream destinations and what I'd be eating and what I'd be drinking and just having a little bit of a fantasy because right now I'm building a new show and we've only been on two months as of today. So let's jump into that. Congratulations. Amazing. Thank you. New show. I mean, it, it's it's very exciting. And I think it's a, such a complicated time in media right now. I mean, there's, you know, it's, you know, you, it's brave almost to become a journalist. I, I think that for when I was a kid, it seemed like, and it probably still is to some extent, very exciting to be a journalist. You think that you're on the front lines, potentially, that you're getting to interview politicians and change makers, and you're right in there, right when things are breaking, right? And you're, and you're telling the world, you're informing the world of what's happening. But obviously, in the past few years, that's, that, that message has been distorted in many ways. And it seems that journalism is polarizing. It seems that it is divided. It seems that it's opinionated. It seems that, you know, there have been a kind of a lot of a lot of expressions and words being used against journalism that are, I believe are unfair uh, a lot of the times. However, I do think, you know, listening to what I read about your show, uh, Morning in America, what you're trying to do is that you're trying to be sort of unbiased, right? You're trying to sort of deliver just the news, which is, by the way, when I grew up in the UK, listening to the BBC, they really just told you what was happening, not their opinion about why or how it happened. And yeah. so you kind of sat there and just thought, okay, that's happening. Not that this news you know, anchor is telling me what they think about it or whether it's bad or good. It was just, here it is, the nine o'clock news. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So tell us, I mean, what, what is your, what's, the, what's the, the sort of, I guess your angle and what are you hoping to achieve? Well, I think you said it perfectly. I mean, there was a day in the UK, there's a day in America where you just tuned into the news and they sort of just told you the story and they moved on to the next thing. 
And there was a warmth and there was a familiarity uh, with that anchor, that host, but it was more than just, oh, you know, I think I like what they're wearing or, oh, you know, I think they seem like a nice or a decent person. It was, you know what, this person genuinely wants to inform me or inspire me or provoke me to think differently, but they're not telling me what to think. And I, I believe that is our duty as all journalists, but I'm particularly intentional about it. I've been intentional about it my whole career, no matter who I've worked for. So I feel like all of the training that I've received to, to leave opinion on the back burner or not even in the equation at all is in, an important part of journalism today, is an important part of storytelling today. And to focus on stories that actually bring us together. I was looking at a, a, an article because obviously we have, we're inundated with emails. And uh, this article has statistics on Thanksgiving and people who are trapped, whether they are um, vaccinated or not, they're seeing their family members at a higher level, uh, Republican or Democrat, they are going and visiting with family, some of whom are vaccinated and some of whom are not vaccinated. Uh, and so it's just like, I was like, wow, almost the same percentage of people who are Democrat, Republican, vaccinated and unvaccinated are actually traveling this year to see family and friends for the holiday. That's something we can all rally around rather than talk about who hates what, who hates a mandate, who hates the vaccine, who hates that you know this politician said this or this politician or this party said this. And, and I think that we need to focus on the things that actually bring us together. And that's what I hope to do with Morning in America. Well, I mean, I mean, certainly good luck with that. I mean, but that being said, do you find that is it is there an actual wave of journalism now that is that, that, that where people are taking positions or do you think that it is because I mean obviously if you look at sort of the CNNs of this world Fox News of this world you know you know there are there are definitely opinions I mean there's this is opinionated yes. news regardless <laughs> regardless of whether you like the guy's opinion or not you know you 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 sort of I like a lot of my friends and I can look at show you my phone I literally have CNN um Fox News BBC and uh, New York Times as my four apps. And I will check all four. For, and I will try and f check all four for every article I can find. Why? And now, of course, I'm going to have to use yours as well. And stick yes. Put my app, News Nation I, Now. News, News Nation, Nation app. Now will be up there, I promise, after that. But you're asking me why. Why do you have all those different flavors of news? Because I can't trust anybody. I don't know who's telling me anything. I don't literally, I mean, I love CNN and I have for years and I'm a registered Democrat people, but I don't, it's, but it's not a, a situation where I want to be told someone's opinion necessarily, right? So I'll read one piece and then I'll go to Fox News almost immediately from CNN and then read what they've said. And, and, so I, and then I will go to sort of BBC, which tends to be a little bit more agnostic, although these days not even as much as they used to be when I was a kid. And then I'll go to sort of New York, you know, the New York Times, where it sort of perhaps is more adult version. You know, sort of they give it to me as sort of a grander, bigger words. You know, the vocabulary is greater, and and I and I sort of get a sense of like. Um, you know, perhaps I, you know, I can, I can, I've got a 30,000 foot, you know, look at it. Um, but it, you know, it, but it's impo very important because you can totally get a, a, a distorted side of a story if you only listen to one side. And that's a real shame. It is. Right? That's it is, it is. really damaging. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, the question I was asking is, is sort of for you, how do you, how do you maintain that? Because as you're fed the news, where are you getting your stories from? And, and how do you know? that they are untainted, if you like? Well, I think number one, I will tell you this, and this is something that I talked about when I first joined the network. 
it is not my position to point out who's doing journalism wrong. It is not my job to critique or to judge other journalists or other networks because I've worked for a number of different companies sure. and I've had great experiences at all of them. Um, I believe that you have an individual dignity and, and, and privilege and, and responsibility as a journalist and you can't get caught up in the machinery or the mechanics of it. You have to have this integrity and character of your own. And it's my job to report on what people are saying. I think that a big part of news and the opinion piece is that we're only sharing one portion of the population's opinion oftentimes. It's not just that that news host or, or that correspondent is sharing an opinion. It's, it's really more that we're only portraying a portion of the perspectives in this country. And so it's my duty to say, listen, this is what these folks are saying. This is what these folks are saying. And wait, there's more than two perspectives. These folks over here say this. And to just be heard is so vital in our current culture, in our current media uh, world. It's important to see that there are people who differ from you. And there is so much diversity of thought. But all too often, like you use all those, those, those different sources and different apps, you're getting a different perspective. What if you could turn on, tune in to one network and you could get all those perspectives in one place? Then it's not about my opinion. It's about me sharing with you. Guess what? Your neighbor over here thinks this. And, and, and did you know your neighbor across the uh, coast, the other coast, thinks this? Guess what? People in the middle of the country, your neighbors, fellow Americans, think this. And that's what I will continue to do. That is what I want to put everyday people's voices, which all of us in one sense are everyday people. But there are a lot of everyday people who have not been heard, who have not been seen, and are all of them with the world. You know, one of the, I think something that a lot of everyone's asking is, or perhaps it's just evolved and people are no longer asking, they just expect it. But everything, it doesn't matter what happens, it's looked at through a political lens. And I think that is something which is probably the most damaging. It's as if you know, something can happen like you know, a tragedy where someone drives through a parade and kills a bunch of people. And, and, and that in itself is sort of a madman or an accident. Uh, or, and, and instead of just being reported for what it is, there is slants of where, you know, politically where these people are, who what the march was about, who's walking here. It's, it's not about people. It, it becomes very political. But this seems to be almost everything. It's almost like we can't talk about coffee without this, this sort of discussing, you know, whether people are on the left and the right and what, how it might affect them. Why is that? Why has it become that way? And is it possible, do you think, for us to start to move that conversation away from, from always having a political slant to it? I feel that there are more people who believe like you do that are saying, why is everything so political? I believe that you are not the minority. I believe you're the majority voice. It's just unfortunate that we have to create a fight or we have to see a fight. You know, that where it bleeds, it leads is, is very much a played out uh, methodology in telling stories. And I believe that people are craving a kinder, friendlier way to dis deliver, to distill the messaging that's out there, to tell people what's going on in their world. I think, frankly, after the past year and a half, people are fed up with simply hearing negative, destructive, polarizing, fearful storylines. I believe they want stories of inspiration. They want to see people working together. They see it happening. Thing. This is how I know that this is real. People see the neighbors helping each other. They see the kind acts of strangers. They see children of different ethnic groups and different backgrounds and different religions playing together on the playground. 
And yet then you turn on the television and it's as if there's another alternate universe. Yep. And, and I really do believe that people are saying, you know what, enough is enough. I know the reality that I'm living in. How come it seems like that's left out of the picture? And so I think people are craving and they're going to start demanding way of delivering news that uh, perhaps hasn't quite been as much in focus as before, but we will not, in media, we will not be able to ignore it. I think this is the beginning of a great wave where people are going to look for more positive stories on news. And actually, if you turn on the television sets, I think a lot of news agencies are looking to tell those stories of inspiration, but oftentimes they're features, you know, they're at the bottom of the newscast. But higher up in the story count, will we start to see stories of those who are actually making the world a better place because that's what we all want. We want a better place for ourselves and for our families, for our children, uh, for, for our schools. I mean, education being such a politicized uh, conversation, but it will never go away. And, and I believe that people are craving hope and not just because it's the holidays and not just because we went through a pandemic, but because they really just want to see us be human to each other again. I really well, believe I, that. I, I think it really also has to do with people just wanting to know what the news is, right? So what does the word news mean, right? So, uh, you know, I think, you know, when I think of news, it's something that you haven't heard of before. It's something that is coming to you that is new, right? And you're going you're gonna to listen to it and you're going to be, oh, that's a story I didn't know. Or it's an update on a story that's, that's going on. And it's so you're, but it seems to be that to your point that, for all too long now it's it's only news if it's bad news right so therefore something amazing that's happened or if it is amazing it becomes de sort of delegated to a special where it's almost like fun news at the end you know and we're going to tell you a funny little story about something that happened that's nice you know or it's cnn heroes and they make a special around it but it's these people are heroes which by default makes them into sort of fictional characters versus actual people because it's you know they're now heroes which is like you know okay what are they what does that mean whereas heroes are literally everyday people happening everywhere you know ding, 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 ding. you're amazing right. that's ex I, I couldn't agree with you more that's exactly right well, they, they, you know, you mentioned it. I'm really echoing your, what you're saying. And, and, you know, you also mentioned something else, which is the fact that I know when I sit at my table with my friends at a party, my friends come from all sides of the uh, political aisle. We don't really talk politics. In fact, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't seep in here and there, but it's civil and it's fun and it can be good banter. And we have a different of a, a difference of opinion. But what binds us together is our humanity. Ultimately, you know, people are good. They're not bad inherently, and, and they actually, you know, they may have a difference of how they want government to control them or how they want their money to be spent and all those sorts of things, but they don't have to be the sort of thing that mean that we have to throttle each other and that we can't actually be nice or enjoy dancing in a room together or all things that are human, right? The things that for, you know, thousands of years we've all done together. Now it's like, we can't possibly, we are, there's like a picket line between people, which I, now, so I guess the question I have for you on that is, what role is media responsible for that? Because one can say politics, but it, the, this is a lot of this is coming from the media. It's coming from the, the, this rhetoric is coming through from the media. Um, obviously, we've had politicians like, you know, you know, presidents even who are right up there who feel like they're, you know, journalists themselves by the way they go on. But, it, but I, I, you know, do you feel that the new the actual news stations, the, uh, the networks themselves are responsible for 
pushing the, this kind of agenda to, to, to speak such, you know, to give such politics away? That is a big question. And I wouldn't want to try to make sense of something so large, but I will say this, I believe that we do need to take responsibility individually for the messaging that we are putting out, that we should make sure to make ourselves accountable because this is a grand stage. People are tuning in, they're using TikTok and Twitter as well as you know, the major networks and cable networks to actually uh, disseminate you know, what is going on in their world and to understand what people who look like them or people who live near them or people who live across the world from them are thinking and doing. And so I just know that for me personally, the reason why I chose to join a network like News Nation is because they had this purpose-driven mission, which I hadn't seen uh, in the same way at, at other networks. I had not seen a purpose-driven mission to say, you know what, there is a need, there is an audience there who wants exactly what you're talking about, Nigel. They want yeah. to see news, things that are new, not just the old stories or the same story rehashed and, and rehashed again and again with more damning evidence every single time they run it across the bottom banner of the screen. They wanna hear something that maybe they hadn't heard before and they want to see the world that they know, which is people like, again, you mentioned at a cocktail party, having a conversation in a civil way without jumping into politics and jumping into controversies every five minutes because that's just not real life. Target the acts of people who are doing things where they're one in a million. It's a one in a million opportunity to meet this person. It's a one in a million chance for this child to be cured of a certain disease. It's a one in a million chance at the lottery. When there are everyday people who are walking down the street, who are taking the train, who are driving in rush hour traffic right now, who are thinking, when is it gonna happen for me? Or, you know, I'm gonna go and help my neighbor. I talked to this guy today. He's exactly who I want to have on the show every single day. He delivers groceries with the app Dumpling and which is becoming more and more popular for grocery delivery. And he says, you know, what's really in my heart is to encourage the grocery store workers when I go in because they're under so much more stress due to staffing shortages. So whenever I go to the store, I think of one thing I can do every day to encourage the person working in the checkout counter or stocking the shelves. And I'm literally like melting because I'm like, oh my gosh, you are who we all want to be. And he says, and if there's not a way that I can make them feel better that day, then I put my earbuds in and I listen to really happy music so I can have a smile on my face when I walk through. Hmm. That's what we're all trying to do in the midst of politics, in the midst, in midst of uh, um, inflation. I'm trying to think of the right word, inflation. In the midst of isolation, we are all saying, okay, can I connect? Can I leave this world a better place? Can I leave, you know, can I not be so busy? that I don't realize what my kids are going through, that I don't realize what my parents are going through, that I don't realize what the person next to me who's waiting in line at the you know, ATM machine or at the checkout counter going through. I, I really think that we're all craving real connection and that's our responsibility. So I can't speak to really the problem. I'm really more solution focused right now. I know what the, we both have seen the problem. I can't really explain oh. the problem, but if I focus on the solution, you can only hit a target that you can see. And a lot of times in media, and specifically in news, we are pointing to the problem and we are pointing to the tragedy, but we're not pointing to the people who are the problem solvers. That's what we need to look at. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, do you get you know, stories on your desk that you decide that you just don't wanna tell? I mean, and, or rather, if there is a really important story of the day, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like there is one because everyone's reporting on it. Yet, potentially, sometimes I listen to the news and I think, am I really being, this is really the story? This is really the news? And, but it's everyone's jumping all over it because it's, it's outrageous or it's scandalous or it's, you know, just it's something which is going to spike ratings temporarily, you know, and then it's dropped the next day, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm wondering with someone like yourself, if you're trying to, you know, tell a certain type of news or, or tell it in a certain way, can you afford to not tell those stories? Otherwise, you're sort of, you know, are you missing something? Are you, as it feels that's what's happening. Everyone is, you know, someone says something and another person reacts on the other side, you know, another network, and then they point fingers at each other. They actually call each other out. Are the journalists calling journalists out? Who said this and who said that? And you, you know, if I read Fox, they're talking about CNN reporters. I read CNN, they're talking about Fox report. And I'm like, guys, you're putting yourself into the news. You're, 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 you're making yourself the news. It's like, how are you the news? You're the news cast, casters, the news readers. It's like, what the hell? I'm like, how are you the news? But, but they become the news. So I guess, you know, to my point here, the question is, is are you able to pick and choose your stories? And, and, and if not, or if so, how? I, cer- I certainly can't tell you exactly how the sausage is made. Um, you know, I, I don't have that liberty fully, but I will tell you that there are conversations to be had. And whether it's a story like the border, um, some people would call what's happening at the border a crisis. Other people would say the situation, you know, depending upon what network, what newscast you're watching and who you're listening to. Um, the January 6th uh, attacks, uh, different people have different ways of defining what happened and the uh, ramifications of what happened and the magnitude of what happened. I, I think that some stories can't be ignored, so to speak, or tabled, but I believe that you have to you have to take your, the time to actually have the conversations before you get on air about, okay, so how are we going to tell the story in a way that is different than has already been told? You know, you can only hear so many newscasts before, and I'm sure you've, you've been here, where you're watching different channels or you're flipping through and it's like the same thing being regurgitated every single network with one particular angle off, you know, or different than the other. But you're just like, it's like Pete and repeat. But I always, you know, I never like to talk about kindness and empathy in a way that makes people think it's very sappy or that, oh, well, you know, okay, Pollyanna, or if that's too um, dated for some of your listeners, you know, someone who's just so tone deaf that they don't get that there are realities, that there are harsh realities, that there are hardships, that there are challenges in this world. And, and by God, we all know that there are, but when you talk about empathy and kindness, sometimes people could maybe make that assumption, right? But I truly believe that if we look through the filter of kindness and empathy, those are universal languages. They defy religion, they defy political party affiliation. And so rather than just regurgitate some lines in a script, asking the questions, I'm very honored that I have so many interviews. I mean, I don't count how many interviews I do a day, but at the height of the show, um, I mean, I can do easily 13 interviews in a day in three hours time because I'm live the whole time as the only host. And I'm really listening for what I can ask that other people would not be brave enough to ask. I'm looking to ask for the things that actually put a different perspective or not, it's not spin. It's how come nobody's asking, yeah. How come nobody's asking this question? So that's what I do. Uh, Which again, you know, 
I think it, it, the spin aspect is something different. That's when you're almost looking to catch someone out, right? It's and it's an angle that you're trying to force them to sort of go down, you know, versus asking a sort of a, a question that is that, that begs to be asked because of what they're saying, and, and you care about listening to what perhaps what they have to say, not what you want to hear or the angle you want them to go down. And you know, I you know, you mentioned something just a moment ago too, and and I I feel that personality is something which is curious with with journalism and, and something which i feel is can get in the way of journalism in as much as not to say that our, our news anchors shouldn't be stars shouldn't be celebrities or shouldn't be you know big personalities on some level but you know or, or that they should be vanilla and or very bland but there is an element of if you are going to deliver the news if you are going to be sort of non-biased and, and unpolitical, so, so to speak, and agnostic potentially, then there is an element of being sort of like, here it is, and, and it's not about me. It's not about the drama of me. It's not about how I'm going to roll my eyes because I don't think sort of this. It's not because I'm going to shed a slight tear or, or I'm going to look down disdainfully or I'm going to, you know, sort of show my anger or anguish. Not to say that we're not, you wouldn't be emotional, that you wouldn't be distressed or happy by a story because all of this is human nature. But it's gone from something where someone can just deliver it and try and give it to you in a very, in, in a calm, kind way, almost like, sort of a teacher might help a student because he wants them to learn, but he doesn't have to, one doesn't want to push him one way or the other. But it seems now that we, we're told the news and, and it's a theatrical event. It's a sort of, you know, like, wow, I'm, I, what's going to happen today? What are they going to do? It's a drama. I, I think that um, personality is, is a wonderful thing. I mean, we want our children to have fully developed personalities and, and to be themselves. And I sure. think that as long as you're yourself, then it's okay. It's just, it's not my job, I, I feel like I've forfeited the right to have an opinion because I truly believe that journalism is a public service. And, um, and yet every once in a while, you know, if we're doing something fun, then it's like, like we were doing a story about, and this is really light, this is not heavy, but maybe it's heavy to some people. Eight, more, there, are more, there are more 18 to 29 year olds living at home today, uh, than there were, I think, in the 1940s. And uh, we were looking at this Bloomberg study or Business Insider, I can't remember. And so we're having this conversation and one of the people on the set was saying, oh, you better get out of your house. You better get out of your mama's house. And I said, you know, whether you live with your parents or not, there shouldn't be shame around it. I think there's too much shame. And I said, but you can pay rent. <laughs> and you know, you just, and take your parents out to dinner too, if you're living at home with them. But so you, you, you make things light and you talk about things that, We've all either been, I mean, I definitely moved back home after college, um, or you know someone who has, and there's a lot of responsibility on young people to try to arrive, to be famous, to be YouTube, and, you know. Or maybe there's just the Italian population has just become incredibly <laughs> massive in America. Because, you know, if you go to Europe, Southern Europe, people live in their homes with their parents until they're married, right? So right. Could be, if you're a New Yorker, that means when you're 40, you move out. <laughs> right. We all can relate. Hashtag relatable, you know? Right. So it's all good. But so, so those little things, like, I think that somebody thought, you know, oh, well, if you're going to tell the news and you're going to be impartial, then you're going to be so clinical or you're going to be too soft or you're going to be too bland. And I believe that people confuse being impartial 
with being like dead or numb. You know, you can be alive. You can ex- you can express your 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 vigor without being so opinionated that you villainize. And I think that's the difference. Sharing an opinion without vilifying anyone is the key. How about have a sense of humor? I mean, that I, is the perfect way to say it. <laughs> I, I think I think that really, you know, there is serious sort of I don't know sense of humor failure. You know, with with a lot of people, they, they, they no matter what it is, they can't laugh at themselves at all. They just, you know, it's sort of like it, everything has to be sort of super dramatic or it's super personal to them. It's like everything is not about you. You know, this is and it's not all about what you what you have to say. And I think that little bit of you know, you, know, you want to deliver the news, you want, and I want to hear the news, but I don't mind if there's a slight slightly cheeky raised eyebrow or as a sort of a you know an element of a kind of like well and there we have it for today's news you know like or something where you're like you, you can tell the guy thinks this is perhaps not great or or this is a little you know like i'm not sure about this this whatever there's a little element of that that's human but i think something like to you know to just on that point of obviously personality if it becomes so dramatic that you it's really that it's the show all about this individual and his opinions and that's the only news we're getting then that's dangerous you know it's no longer which i understand as opinionated news i mean that's what people are watching these days it seems but that's the only way place we're getting our news it's kind of crazy i'd love to know changing tack a little bit here okay in your career Mm -hmm. who is has it been anyone specifically who's impacted you in your career who's really sort of helped lead you who's been a mentor for you Oh God, yes, yeah. In my book, uh, the foreword is written by a man named Bill Kraus, and he has. When I was uh, a news anchor in Sacramento, California, my first job, I had started off being a road reporter, a traffic reporter. You know, I told you how to avoid a traffic snag or an accident, and I I went in and I said, I will be an anchor here, so you might as well train me. And not long after, I told them that, and they said, Oh well, you have quite the nice attitude. I said, Yeah, well, I'm just confident. Uh, I was trained to be an anchor and I met Bill and, you know, I asked him if he would mentor me because I saw him speaking at a conference and there are two things that stood out to me that apply today. Uh, one is have love come out of your eyes. They don't teach you that in J school. Uh, they, you know, and, and if you talk to somebody like Tyra, it's about smizing, right? You just like, I was going to say, I talk about that all the time. Yes. Smizing. Uh, I talked to people who, when they looked into the camera so that they didn't look deadpan, they would imagine their sweet grandmother sitting on a sofa or they'd imagine someone they loved. And instead of doing that, when, when Bill would say, let love come out of your eyes, he said, I want you to, whoever is on the other end of that screen, whoever's on the other side of that camera, I want them to feel that warmth. It's not a seduction. It's not flirtatious. It's really like, I want you to know you're not alone. I want you to know I get you. And I, and I started working on that, gosh, 15 years ago. Uh, the other thing that he taught me was, it is not your job to share your opinion. I remember I was auditioning for an anchor job in another city and they were having me banter with their investigative reporter and it was over some controversial topic. And I said, I don't know what to do. You've taught me not to share my opinion 15 years ago. And he said, I don't, and this was you know, a matter of time and later, um, he said, I don't want you to share your opinion. He said, I want you to inspire and provoke to new thought. That's your job. And I really took those two things, let love come out of your eyes, exude warmth, exude friendliness, exude, 
exude, you know, it's kind of like when you think of uh, someone who can just let you know that they're like you, even though you never met them before with a look, when you, when you walk anywhere at the park, let's just say you're in Central Park and you cross paths with someone. And even if they have a mask on, if you catch their eye and they have that warm smile in their eyes, you don't have to see any part of their face. You just know that honing that to connect with viewers and knowing that it is not about giving my opinion. It is about inspiring people and provoking them to new thought. That my is grandmother, my grandmother used to say that, um, you know, that she's talked about my grandfather and, and I never met him. And she would say that he had um, he had kind eyes. And that was one of her great describe, descriptions of him. He said that he was a man with very kind eyes. And I, you know, as a kid, you'd often wonder what kind eyes meant. You know, you, you know, and it was, and she would explain it to you. There's, you know, when you looked at him, you knew that he was looking at you with kindness in his heart, right? So that concept of look with love, let love come out of your eyes. It's that, you know, I think that to that point, if you look at someone and, and you're judgmental, you can tell when someone's judging you. Like when someone walks up and they are reading you like a book, like, is the, do I like the cover? I don't care about the, the contents. I'm not probably going to ever read this book, but I want to see if I look like the cover. And people do that with you, people. They, they look at you and they like, do I like his hair? Do I like his outfit? Do I, does, does this person look right to me? Do they fit in? Are they a part of my group of people, people I'd want to be seen with or not? Or, or how does this person make me when I'm with that person? How do I feel because of the way they look? regardless of the content of, of who that person is. And I think so that is very important. You know, certainly when you're a newscaster and your people are looking at your face, yeah. are you being judgmental without, you know, not necessarily saying it in your words, but you don't need to. Yeah. Eyes are the, the windows to your soul, as we say. And that if, you, if you, can, you can say a million things about how you feel, just by the way you're looking with your eyes as you say it, right? So that's super interesting. I think that's a really wise, some wise words right there. Amazing, actually, um, uh, a little takeaway. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, obviously we, you know, mentors are an important thing. You, you did something just a moment ago where, you, you know, classic in news, by the way, folks, a little segue where um, Adrian broke, let out about her book Right. So, you know, she sort of said, well, you know, in my book, um, which was, you know, really, that's how we, we like to self-promote on television. We were able to organically <laughs> put, pop out our little things. Here. I was about to get to your book. You didn't have go to go right ahead, Nigel. You're I'm doing joking. so great. <laughs> the author of your hidden superpower, the kindness that makes you unbeatable at work and connects you with anyone, um, highlighting how kindness is a game changer in business, the door opener to fulfillment and the key to authenticity and confidence. Talk to us about this book. I mean, you know, so it's, it's the actual title is Your Hidden Superpower, right? Yes, that's the actual title. Uh, and I found that, you know, when I was growing up in the industry and I was looking at different women who were journalists and who I aspired to be like, I thought every one of them had their thing, their it factor, right? And I thought, well, I can't really take somebody else's it factor. I, I have to tap into my own, but I don't know what it is. And so, again, through mentoring, it was, it was his idea, it was Bill's idea. He said, you should write a book on kindness because you get it at a different level than some people I've met and some people I know. And he said, you should write it, write it down. And I found that my it factor, my way of connecting with people in interviews was to be kind. And it was very, uh, it was very interesting to see people be surprised 
I remember walking into some of my interviews with some of the biggest stars in the world and being kind to them genuinely and their face just kind of, I mean, literally the face they would make like, oh, this isn't going to be like your typical. Like, were they unex were they expecting you to be what with them? Like, <laughs> don't know. Cruel or, you know. I don't, I just think that there's, you know, you were talking about being judgy. I tell people all the time, and I actually told this to Diane Sawyer when I met her for the first time at ABC News, because she was asking me about my story. Talk about a woman who can see right through your soul. I mean, she, one of the greatest interviewers of all time. And uh, she was asking me a question. And I said, well, I just, when I go into an interview, it doesn't matter what that person has done or, or what their background is or, or what they believe. If I judge them, I know I've now shut down any chance of having a real interview with them. I can't have a conversation with you if you've already noticed my body language, my eyes are judgy and I've already predetermined what I think about you and what I think you're going to say. The interview is officially cut off even if we keep exchanging words. And so I decided that I would completely kind of take on uh, this identity as someone who could use kindness as my, you know, not so secret weapon, so to speak, or a key to unlock a door to people who are naturally guarded and really understandably guarded uh, if they are somebody in the public spotlight. So uh, I write about that. I write about a lot of stories from my uh, days at Good Morning America. Uh, behind the scenes and in front of the cameras and it's helped me actually connect with people when I'm not on camera because I, I think that when you are on tv you have a chance to actually use the tools that you've learned in media and apply them to real life is there you mentioned obviously these sort of various people that you've met and what have you and I'm imagining some of these people have appeared in your book but are there has there been interviews that perhaps have been, you mentioned being a game changer, are, are there elements of, are there been interviews or people you've met that have sort of changed your perspective dramatically um, or, or helped you sort of perhaps to sort of fine tune the, way, the kind of person that you wanted to be? Well, I think that when I write the book, again, I'm, I'm not trying to self-promote, I'm just saying this is what I wrote in the book. The drinking game, everybody, every time she drink, mentions the book, Okay. When I mentioned book, you take a swig. Um, there you go. There you go. Um, I had been inspired by a quote by uh, Diane von Furstenberg who said, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew the kind of woman I wanted to be. And I realized that a job will never make me happy. A career would never make me happy. Traveling all over the world to these beautiful locations and staying in lovely luxury hotels is never going to make me happy. So what will make me happy? It will be becoming the person I wanna be. And when I would look at, I, I mean, even just your story, I could put that in my next book when you said that you're, you heard the grandfather you never met was described as having kind eyes. When I would look at posts from celebrities, Catherine Zeta-Jones, I saved a screenshot, her daughter's birthday last year. She wrote uh, that she's most proud of her daughter because she's such a kind young woman. And, and Jennifer Lopez and Kim Kardashian, I want my kids to be kind. And so it was obviously something that, you know, we were raised to know existed. But the thing with me was, God, why do we make it seem like it's this elementary thing that it's just an anti-bullying campaign or it's something that children should know to do and it's something that grownups should know better to do? And I thought, how do you practically apply kindness rather than make it this nebulous thing about etiquette and being a nice person? What does that mean? And so um, I think that every time I sat down and I extended kindness and I saw kindness reciprocated, it was a game changer for me because it just created more and more of a foundation for this is the right way to live. And you get tested, honestly, like I'm the oldest of seven kids. I know how to scrap if wow. I have to, you know what I'm saying? Like I just, 
we we had fights. We had uh, a lot of like you know family dysfunction, like every family does. But the fact is, is that it is not easy to be kind all the time. It is a lot easier to just snap. It is a lot easier to speak ill of somebody or to go off on somebody. And that's kind of the world of of media today anyway. It's just easier to just call people on their stuff. Um, But I think that because I'm in front of a camera, it's actually heightened my awareness of the fact that none of us can afford that. You know, our kids are living in a day where you have to actually submit your social media account so they can do a quick screen of who you've been over the past, what, five, 10, 15 years? And what you've said, and if you've said anything that was considered unkind, and that could be taken into consideration for your job, for your future, for your college application, we can't afford, I, I remember I told somebody not too long ago, I said, I, I live my life like I'm always on camera. Do I mess up? Do I make mistakes? Absolutely, freaking positively. But I still try to think like, what if I was on camera right now? What if I was on hot mic right now? I'm not walking on eggshells. It's like, how can I be the highest version of myself? You know, I, I imagine somebody like Kate Middleton has to constantly think about herself always being on camera. And, and what would she say if there was a hot mic rolling on her about anybody in her family, about anybody who maybe gave her a hard time in the press? So, um, yes, yeah, your highness. <laughs> I mean, you know, you just, you have to just, to me, we're being called to a higher standard in our culture today. It's not just political correctness, though there's a lot of that. It's not just cancel culture, though that could be a whole conversation we could talk an hour about. But I think that all of us are demanding of ourselves to be a lot kinder. And so we have to start using kindness as a kind of education and re-education, not just for kids, not just for you know moms and dads, but for all of us. Yeah, you mentioned a second ago, you know, parents and various celebrities' parents saying, you know, I, I, nothing I want more than for my children to be kind. Um, in my experience, children are inherently kind. It is the parents who are inherently cruel. And, and it, it is the reverse. It's not the children. Children don't need to learn to be kind. Children don't come out of, you know, into the world rather um, prejudiced or racist. They don't see color and they don't see disfigurement, really. They see kindness. And, yeah. and I can tell you firsthand from working with people with, you know, disabilities and what have you, where children don't care at all whether someone is disformed or you know has some, some perhaps mental you know impairment or whatever if that person is kind and nice to them then they love that person and it doesn't matter who that person is if that person is not nice to them they do not find that person attractive they do not like that person and it is as simple as that it's it is as cut and dry as kindness is the differentiator and somehow we train our children through whether it's at home or whether it's through school and it's education and it's the world that adults have created where kids learn or forget all about kindness or or kindness becomes something which is in my opinion it seems to be almost a a luxury for people it's not something where you know we can't all afford to be kind because it's it's going to get in the way or it's going to you know cause an issue and it's better like you know more controlling or you'll have more control over your life if you are perhaps more cynical you're more you know judgmental you know you're you're not going to you know you're sort of going to perhaps look after yourself first right like look you know look you know and, and, and we live in a society where paying taxes is frowned upon you know in large part because you know, we want to keep the money for ourselves, and it's like, well, of course, that's got to be better. 
Whereas if you look at countries sort of like Sweden and sort of Norway and Eric countries in Europe where they have high tax brackets, but public services are uh, on an all-time high with national health services and free college and university and you know various things like this, where you actually you know the statistics show that people on average is some of the happiest happiest countries in the world, where people say they feel happy, they feel they, they comfortable, right? But I, I think there's just a it's, it's a huge re-education. That needs to happen, and I, I, I'm scared when I look at you know I live here in the U.S. I'm born in England, you know I, I, I'm come my parents I come from all over the world. My both my parents born in India, but my mother's Sri Lankan and my father's English Irish. I feel like I'm a sort of international person, right? And and when I look at the world, although I live in New York, I don't feel like I have to be a New Yorker or I have to be. I'm just a person. I'm a sort of citizen of the world, if you like. And and, and I, I the, the thing that makes me scared is is our lack of sensitivity and kindness and sort of genuineness. You know, we are contrived a lot of the time, and we are what people want us to be. And I, you know, I, I listening to you, I'm very. I got to say, I feel so. It feels great to actually hear you talk like this because it's not something that you hear too often, or, or really ever, um, and certainly not from someone who potentially is in the media who has the ability to influence what people hear and how people hear it, right? So, you know, which is which is I think very important. I mean, you know, I, I, this is not an interview about me, but I do feel like it's, I love to have a good conversation, and I love to, you know, try and get, you know, really stimulate where what what the, whoever I'm talking to, what you know, where they're coming from, and, and what what they're about. Um, you know, on the subject of kindness, do you feel that there is? You know, you've mentioned it earlier. There's a wave of things changing. There's a groundswell of of, of a sort of a rise. You know, you mentioned various celebrities. Is it bigger than 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 just that? Do you think that we can get past that? And what else do we have to do other than perhaps tell the news in a different way to really get this groundswell and this 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 thing this sort of actually happen, this bubble to burst or whatever? Well, I think you know, you mentioned children and you mentioned how adults are the ones who teach hate and teach um, unkindness, you know, uh, a lack of compassion. I think that a lot of people are hurting today. I think that uh, something that I'm glad that I learned as a younger adult that most people I think probably realize as they're older is how many disappointments have created wounds inside of them that have gone, gone untended. You know, life doesn't go the way we want it to go. And sometimes we harbor resentments or, or anger uh, towards a boss or towards somebody who possibly did us wrong, who looked a certain way, who, who treated us a certain way. I think that it's up to companies and corporations, not just the media. I mean, the media does have quite a powerful influence over culture, but if it was up to me, I would want every government, I would want every office, I would want every nonprofit organization to start looking at ways to create more compassionate culture because people do spend more time at work than they do anything else. They spend more time on the clock than they do spending with their families. And how can we be more aware of each other. When the pandemic first hit, and I, I know that, thank goodness, uh, we have come over a large hump. And to know that there were so many people, elderly people, people who weren't as mobile physically, who were just locked up and, and no one could come see them, no one could come visit them. And they were fearful of getting uh, con contracting the virus. Uh, and just thinking about how public a place New York City is, it really just gave me this big shock of oh my gosh, there are people living like this every single day before this pandemic happened, where they felt, where they felt alone. What are we doing uh, to create 
a culture that is more aware of those who don't have family, who don't have the steadiness of the ringing of a phone or a company that comes over uh, for the weekend. And, and I think that as corporations are thinking about this move towards being hybrid, where you sometimes work at the office and sometimes you work at home and parents are thinking about work-life balance more than ever, that we're going to have to really strategically think of the pressures that teachers are under right now after the past year and a half, but they've already under pressure, uh, the kind of pressure that parents are under right now. And it's not gonna come from just throwing money at the problem. We have to get to the root causes and we have to care again. It was just Veterans Day here in the United States. And, and I hope that this is not a polarizing or political uh, conversation surrounding Veterans Day, but for our country, a lot of people have a sense of patriotism. They wanna honor those who have served. They wanna honor those who are in the military. And I was talking to a gentleman with an organization that helps veterans. And I said, do you think we have lost honor in this country? And I said, do you think even people understand what it means to appreciate and honor those who serve? And he looked at me and he kind of smiled and said, you know, Adrian, thank you for saying that because I think we have lost honor. You know, if we can't honor those who have in times past paid some of the highest, the most, the most high price, how are we going to honor those who walk our streets every single day and it's like, it's not gonna turn in an instant. It's gonna take people, how can we honor, you know, not to change topics too much, but how can we honor those who through the pandemic served us food and created meals for people who didn't have time to cook or needed to rely on takeout and Uber Eats? How are we gonna honor those people? It's not just about throwing money at it. Uh, one of my favorite stories right now is how schools are so short staffed. They are getting kids, teens, who are enrolled in their schools to be the janitors and to be the cafeteria workers. We are living on a different wavelength right now and we rely on each other so much. So this isn't about a party line. This isn't about compartmentalizing all these different groups. It's actually paying attention to the fact that we need each other so much more now. Can you take the time to volunteer? Can you take the time to visit a convalescent home? Can you take the time to get a second job? Not because you need the money of $15 an hour, but because there are people there who are struggling because they're working double shifts. Can we take the time to thank our nurses and our medical community now that we're not cheering for them on doorsteps and outside in New York City like we were for months and months? How can we say thanks? How can we thank our airline uh, staff, our crews, our flight attendants who are being assaulted, 5,000 incidents from the FAA of unruly passengers. We have a responsibility in light of the fact that there are so many issues going on and so many atrocities going on in our culture today to be, there are many more of us than are with those people who are unruly. There are many more of us who are kind. I think that it's time for us to rise up and actually become very loud about being kind and compassionate in our society. And if, if I can do that at all with the news, and I definitely know I can in some way and fashion, and I'm doing it now by just putting stories of kindness and broadcasting them on TV every single day, I certainly will. And I'm dedicated to doing that. Here, here. I couldn't agree more. I mean, quite frankly, volunteering people is is the way to go. And I, I will, you know, literally, if, I, if there's anyone's ever asked me anything about how they can literally become a more people ask me this because like, don't forget guys i'm a fashion photographer who worked on a show called america's next top model so people will say to me how am i beautiful 
Or they would say, <laughs> oh yeah, people every day, am I beautiful? Is my daughter beautiful? Or do you think really? I'm attractive? And they, uh, uh, hundreds of people will ask you this question. And, and you know, and they, because of the insecurity and the desire for, for recognition by someone else to say, to officially stamp you as being, you know, what's, what's, what's desired, right? And, and I'll say, you know, there's nothing that can make you more beautiful than your sense of, um, confidence that comes from being proud of who you are as a person right and that one way to become proud of who you are as a person is to volunteer if you give back if you share if you give kindness to people then you have a right to walk out with your head held up high with a strut in your step with the feeling that you've done and worked hard to help other people that my friends will make you the most beautiful person you could possibly ever be that will have kindness in your eyes right which is the the the, the you know going back and, and not to trivialize it but we talk about a smize that is the ultimate <laughs> smize people right there there you go tyra uh, so you've got it right there in a nutshell how can people where can people find news nation first of all where, where about where do we locate it okay so uh, it is cable though we do have some streaming services on hulu if you go to newsnationnow.com on your cell phone, you actually scroll down to the bottom and there's a clickable channel finder. And it'll ask you to enter your zip code and it'll locate all the stations, whether it's streaming or whether it's on cable and you have a cable provider and tell you exactly where to find us. So it's, again, the, the network has only been around for a little over a year, so it's brand right. new. But I really believe, I, I've talked to people of different age groups, and I was asking some people in their 20s at this fair I was at in Texas, and I said, if you could find news that was really positive and impartial, would you watch it? Yes. I said, even if you have to get cable? They said, yeah, because they, they were so tired of what they considered you know, something they didn't want to watch. And I said, well, what if you could find something that you liked? And they said, we would work hard to find it. And I, I, I hope that I'm, I'm being honest in the fact that I do believe them. I, I didn't think that they were just blowing smoke. So do that. You can go on News Nation now. Uh, the App Store has it. And um, yeah, I'm really proud. I'm really proud to be doing this. And again, to be focused on positivity and, and the solutions that we need every day. Before we let you go, and you've been very generous with your time, I, we have something called Last Orders on the Shaken and Stirred show, which is a quick kind <laughs> oh, of... Oh, no, what is this? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, sorry, you know, you have to drink again, get your shot glass out. I know you're going to bed, I think now, I probably you're past your bedtime. I'm, I'm already holding you up, aren't I? Um, it's super simple. First of all, list five words that describe your character. Five words that describe my character. Okay, tenacious, generous, um gosh this is not easy to describe yourself nigel um loyal um uh unique and kind there you go i was waiting for the last one you saved that one to last i'm like okay this is that was the easy gotta, one <laughs> gotta put kind in there somewhere um and this is a bit of a morbid question, but it's, it's it's something which kind of, you know, gets to it at the end of the day. What would you like your epitaph to read? Mm, I thought about this because I went to this workshop once and they were talking about, you know, real the, the biggest real estate that will always go up in cost is your burial plot. Uh, so um, what would I like my epitaph to read? Gosh, that is such a good question. I thought about it. I just, ew, it's, it is morbid. I think that I'd wanted to read that I lived my full life, you know, that I didn't leave anything on the table um, and that 
I got to the place in my life where I made the people who met me feel better about themselves. The people who I've always been intrigued by and inspired by have always made everyone else around them feel better. And I think that's what everybody's craving. So I'm not perfect. I definitely have done some things that are not, you know, that are not worthy of the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times. But if I could have on my epithet that, you know, she grew to be the person that she always wanted to be, which was someone who always made others feel better. That's what I'm on a mission to do. So that would be a nice tombstone. It certainly would. Well, a couple more. If you could travel back to any time in history, when and why? Uh, to be quite honest with you, one of the regrets that I have, and it's not a huge regret because I don't really have regrets, but I would love to have interviewed uh, Shirley Temple, Shirley Temple Black. Mm. And I was a young budding um, anchor in Sacramento and I called and I called and I called her people. And, and it was already the time where she, I think, was going through uh, her own ailments and nearing death. But I would have loved to interview her. So if I could have gone back a little bit earlier, if I would have been a little bit older, I would have gone back enough time to interview her. And I really am looking forward to one day, maybe on the other side, interviewing Mother Teresa, because I just can't understand somebody who has that much dedication to something. That's so funny. That was my answer. Really? My, yeah, Mother Teresa, that was my answer. So I'm you're going to interview her first. Right, I know. Oh, well, why I'll you're suggesting follow. you're suggesting I'm going to die first? Is that, what <laughs> is that what you're saying? Like, wow, that's extraordinary. Well, no, right? because you said because you said that was already your answer, so you already had your answer. So first come, first serve, right, Nigel? Yeah, absolutely, first come, first serve. Says the <laughs> oldest oldest sister of seven. You got to love that right there. Final yeah. <laughs> question: Shaken or stirred, Adrian? Oh, shaken. And why shaken? I don't know. I like ice. <laughs> and who said we were talking cocktails everybody adrian banker um check her out on morning in america on news nation uh you can find it it's cable tv you can find it on the app store as well check out her book your hidden superpower thank you so much really you it's a real great conversation it was i really appreciated it and a lot of fun and i i think i've got to make myself another cocktail now Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.